like the noblemen only want to hear about themselves. Creativity, singing, uh, art. But Ashy Pet, she was a good hard worker, and that might have made them want to treat her nice, but it didn't. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family, all kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers to warm your heart and lift your spirit and give flight to your imagination. That's what we do in every episode of the show. We've been doing it since 2013. I'm Sam Payne, your host, and it's such a pleasure for me to be with you every time that you tune in and bring these stories into your home and into your heart. We've got a great hour for you on this hour of the Appleseed. We're going to bring you a story from Noah Baum, a story called The Innkeeper's Clever Daughter that you're going to love. You're also going to hear a Cinderella story, a story told for you by the great storyteller Milbury Birch. You know, there are hundreds of versions of the Cinderella story, and they come from all over the world, and Milbury Birch has made a study of a lot of those versions and has recorded and performed them all over the world for audiences of all kinds, and we're going to bring one to you today called Ashy Pet, a Cinderella story from Milbury Birch. And you're also going to hear a terrific story from the very wonderful Diane Ferlat and her musical partner, Eric Pearson. She's going to bring you a story called Bone Day that you're going to love. It's an ancient fable, one of Aesop's fables, a story with a little lesson built in that will help you live your life well. That's the purpose of a fable, right? And you're going to hear an entry in the Radio Family Journal, a memory of a magic trick learned by my son when he was small. And you'll hear a conversation with Stuart Foster about the storytelling in a video game called Wander Song. You won't want to miss a single word. And to introduce us to the first story that we're going to hear today, I'm very pleased to be joined in the studio by one of our assistant producers, Alyssa Mingorance. Alyssa, it's great to have you with me. Hi, Sam. You know, this is a story that we're going to hear now from Noah Baum. It's a story. I love this story. And and there are a number a of classic. versions of this tale, mm -hmm. right? And this one's a great one. Tell us a little bit about what we're going to hear. Yeah, so in this story, there's an innkeeper who finds himself in a pretty sticky predicament. And um, the only way he can get out of it is if he can solve this series of riddles. And unfortunately, the innkeeper is just stumped. He's totally lost. Um, but... <laughs> Also lucky for him is that he happens to have a very clever and kind daughter. Right. Yeah, this this is a story. This is a story that in its time mm -hmm. was unusual, not so unusual now, but in its time was unusual in that it featured kind of this uh, this sort of surprise appearance from a strong young female character. Absolutely. Right? We'd love to see yeah, it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and again, a very old tale of which there are many versions. This one told for you by Noah Baum. And we're happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. was a very young nobleman who had recently inherited a vast estate. Upon this estate, he had two leaseholders, a woodsman who leased his woods and an innkeeper who leased his inn. Now that young man, he was very young, very rich and very bored. 
And when it was time to renew the lease for his leaseholders, he called them to him and he said, This year I will renew the lease free of charge for the next ten years to the one who can answer three riddles. If you do not answer them correctly, the lease will be doubled for the next ten years. Now here are the riddles. What is the fastest thing in the world? What is the dearest thing in the world? And what is the richest thing in the world? Go! You have three days to bring me an answer. Well, the woodsman, he went home to his wife in a huff of anger. Oh, that young master, who does he think he is? Giving us riddles in exchange for the lease? But when he told the riddles to his wife, she said, Ah, husband, young men like the noblemen only want to hear about themselves. Do not worry. Just tell him that his horse is the fastest. His mother, naturally, is the dearest. And everyone knows he's the richest man around, so tell him that his chest of treasures is the richest. The woodsman was pleased with his wife's answers. Meanwhile, the innkeeper went home, downcast and worried. He did not have a wife, but he had an only daughter. Zusha was her name, and she was as clever as she was beautiful. When she saw her father's worried face, she asked him what was the matter, and he said, Ah, my daughter, we shall soon have to find a new roof above our head, for the young master will renew the lease to the one who can Give him answers to riddles. But tell me, father, what are they? Perhaps I can help. When he told her, she smiled and said, Do not worry, father. I will give you the answers when it's time for you to go. On the third day, the woodsman and the innkeeper appeared before the young nobleman. First to speak was the woodsman. <coughs> Master, why the fastest thing in the world is your horse. <laughs> The dearest thing in the world, why, naturally, it is your mother. And the richest thing in the world is your chest of treasures. The young man looked more bored than ever. He turned to the innkeeper. The innkeeper tried to hide his trembling hands. Master, I believe the fastest thing in the world is thought for it can pass great distances in the twinkling of an eye. The dearest thing in the world is sleep, for no human being can survive without it. And the richest thing in the world is the earth, for all riches come from it. A big smile spread across the young nobleman's face. Ah, those were excellent answers, my good man. But now be honest with me. You didn't think of them yourself, did you? Uh, no, sir. Who gave you those answers? My daughter, sir. Your daughter? The young man's face lit up. Well, if your daughter is as clever as that, I would like to meet her. Tell her to come see me in three days' time, but tell her, tell her she must come neither dressed nor naked. Tell her she must come neither walking nor riding, and tell her she must bring me a gift that is not a gift. The poor innkeeper, 
He went home more downcast than before. And when Zusha saw his face, she said, What is it? What happened? Ah, oh, my child, that master, he wants to meet you now. And he's made the most ridiculous conditions. But when he told her, she smiled and said, Do not worry, father. Just go to the market. Buy me a fisherman's net, a goat, two white doves, and a pound of meat. A goat, a fisherman's net, two white doves, and a pound of meat. Zusha, what are you saying? <laughs> but she seems to know what she's doing, and so he went to the market and got her everything that she needed. And on the third day, Zusha stripped off all her clothes until she was as naked as the day she was born, and then she wrapped herself up in the fisherman's net. Now I ask you, was she dressed? No. Fisherman's net is not clothes. But was she naked? No. No. For she was wrapped in a fisherman's net. Then she climbed upon the goat so that her feet touched the ground. And I ask you, was she walking? No. No, she was sitting on the goat. But was she riding? No. Her feet were touching the ground. And in this way, with the doves in one hand and the meat in the other, she dragged herself slowly up to the mansion of the nobleman. He saw her coming through the window and smiled at her cleverness. But to test her courage, he unleashed his dogs. They came barking ferociously at her, but she threw the meat to them and walked calmly past them. She walked in and said, Master, I have brought you a gift that is not a gift. The minute he reached to take her gift, she opened her hands, and the doves flew out the open window. The young man was delighted. I've been looking for someone as clever as you for a long time, he said, and immediately he wanted to marry her. But seeing how clever she is, he said, <clears throat> there is a condition. You must promise me never to interfere in my affairs she looked at him, she said, I will marry you, but I also have a condition. You must promise that if ever you change your mind and decide to send me back to my father's house, you will allow me to take with me one thing that I like best in this house. It was agreed, and they were married, and they lived in happiness for several months. And one day, Two peasants came to the master to settle a dispute, and as they were walking out, Zusha noticed that one of them was crying. She asked him about his troubles, and he said, Oh, madam, you see me and my neighbor. We own a stable in partnership. I own a mare. My neighbor, he owns a wagon. Three nights ago, my mare gave birth to a colt right beneath my neighbor's wagon. And my neighbor claims that the colt belongs to him. Well, we came to the master to settle the dispute, and the master said that whoever owns the wagon owns everything that's beneath it. When Zusha heard that, she was ashamed at her husband's foolish decision. And she said, I think I can help you. And she whispered some instructions in the peasant's ear, and he was off. That afternoon, as the young nobleman was coming home upon his horse on the high road, he saw a curious sight up ahead. In the middle of the dusty road, a man was standing with a fishing pole. As he approached, he saw it was one of the peasants that came to see him earlier that day. 
He came up to him and he said, what are you doing, my good man? Fishing. Fishing? <laughs> Fishing in the middle of the dusty road. Are you out of your mind? No, sir. I just thought if a wagon can give birth to a colt, I can find fish in the dusty road. <laughs> and when the young nobleman heard that, he realized his error in judgment, and he immediately recognized his wife behind that sentence. He stormed into the house, red with rage. How dare you, Zusha? How dare you humiliate me like this in front of my peasants? You broke your promise! And he was so mad that he said he doesn't want to see her anymore, and she must return to her father's house. Zusha did not argue. She only asked for a chance to have one last meal with him. He agreed. She poured a sleeping potion into his drink, and that evening he ate, he drank, and he fell asleep. She then instructed the servants to take him in the carriage. <laughs> That morning, the young nobleman awoke, and he was in the innkeeper's cottage. What is this? What's going on here? There was Zusha smiling. Not much, dear. Just keeping to our agreement, remember? I took with me the one thing I loved best in the house. You. <laughs> For a moment, that young man was speechless. And then he threw his head back and laughed and laughed to realize how Zusha had outwitted him again. He said, I've been an arrogant fool, Zusha. Please forgive me. Come back to the house with me, for I never want to be without you again. And so they lived together in honor and happiness from that day on. And if ever a difficult dispute arose in that young man's affairs, he was known to say, let us bring this matter before my wife, for she is a very clever woman. <laughs> <laughs> Keeper's Clever Daughter, a story told for you by Noah Baum here on the Appleseed. I've been listening to it not only with you, but also with one of our assistant producers, Alyssa Mingorance. Alyssa, that's such a great story. And again, mm -hmm. you know, there, there are lots of versions of that story. And as you chose this story today, what is it that you hope a listener might hear in that story? Um, I think there are a few things, but um, one that I think resonates with me a lot, and uh, I think especially with a younger version of me, <laughs> is that sometimes we get into the most danger or we cause these like predicaments because we're bored. <laughs> sometimes just being bored is like the most dangerous thing you can be. <laughs> you know, it's like a Saturday morning and then you're, you know, you're sibling turns to you and says have you ever wondered if we could and then you know you're going to get in trouble that's right <laughs> <laughs> well a delightful tale told so well by noah baum and a pleasure for us to bring it to you today Alyssa, thanks for joining me absolutely and there's a lot more coming up on the apple seed you're listening to the apple seed we'll be back in a moment 
Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you in this hour of The Appleseed. Uh, if you're just joining us, a moment ago we heard a story told by the great storyteller Noah Baum, a story called The Innkeeper's Clever Daughter. The innkeeper's daughter helps out when the innkeeper isn't quite up to the challenge of guessing the answer to the series of riddles at the center of the story. A fun story told by, again, Noah Baum. There's a lot more coming up on The Appleseed. We want to remind you that you can find us online at byuradio.org slash Appleseed. There's an archive of episodes there, nearly 2,000 episodes deep. And each of those episodes, of course, is filled with stories for you and your family, tall tales, fairy tales, folk tales, family and personal tales, and more. A lot of them will already be favorites, and a lot of them will become favorites as you listen to them. And because we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a story for you to share with the people that you love around the kitchen table or the living room, we'll share a memory here. This is a memory of a magic trick learned by my son. My son is all grown up now. He learned this magic trick when he was small. And the story of it is today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. My son, Skyler, is a grown-up now. But when he was 11, a million years ago it seems, he took to learning magic tricks. And we have a family friend who in those days was a fine jewelry salesman by day and by night a professional magician. How do you like that? Well, he had Skyler hooked, not on the jewelry stuff, but on the magic stuff. Now, we had seen our friend do tricks at parties and on stage the trick that seemed to get the biggest rise out of whatever audience he was performing for is a simple trick that he did right up close. And somehow, over the course of the trick, the victim's watch winds up on the magician's wrist magically. I mean, I've seen people panic for a moment as they rub their wrists, somehow unable to believe that the watch they were wearing only a moment ago has been unbuckled and spirited away and is on the magician's wrist. And nearly every time I've seen the trick, there's the tiniest moment in the victim's face of wondering if the magician plans to return the watch. He always does, of course. It's a spectacular trick. It's awesome. I've never seen anyone catch on. Well, at 11 years old, my son Skyler wasn't up to swiping watches yet. He was starting a little more simply. His favorite trick in those days involved squeezing a single red spongy ball of foam into a tiny little wad, placing it carefully in my clenched fist. He says the magic words, and I open my hand. And there are two balls there instead of just the one that went in there when I was looking. And while I'm gawking at those two balls, he takes those two balls and wads them up, and he puts them back in my fist there are more magic words, and I open my hand again, and there are three balls there. I mean, it's incredible. And even as I'm applauding that trick, he takes those three sponge balls and wads them up together, and before I can blink, they've magically become four. Abundance. Bounty. That's what the red sponge ball trick was all about. 
and I liked Skyler's style. I mean, our friend's watch-stealing trick was a complete gas. It was awesome. But it makes me wary. It's about the precarious nature of the things we treasure. It's about scarcity, right? It reminds me of the world that I find myself living in if I'm not careful. The world of watching my back, of guarding my stuff, lest it creep away in the night. The world, given half the chance, would provide ample reason for a body to feel that way all the time, right? I mean, the world we live in these days. But Skyler's Spongeball trick is every bit as accurate a model of the world I live in, too, if I think about it. I mean, I can hardly turn around without coming face to face with some kind of Spongeball abundance. I mean, when I go home today, someone might have sneaked over and left a sack of fresh plums on my doorstep. I mean, it has happened before. And I might still be reeling from that gift when I get home from work tomorrow afternoon and discover that my neighbor might have shoveled the snow off my front walk. I mean, it's entirely likely. It's happened before. And I wasn't sick or out of town or stuck with a broken shovel or anything that would have given him any better reason for shoveling my walk than to think that I might be delighted to benefit from the sponge ball blessings of a shoveled walk. Ask and ye shall receive, it says somewhere. And we resolve to, and then, wouldn't you know it, we turn around to find blessings strewn out before us that we never even thought to ask for. Far be it for me to second-guess the cosmic reasons behind those surprise gifts, but it's almost as if there's someone out there who simply enjoys seeing us delighted. And I do know this. I've watched 11-year-old Skyler do that spongeball trick for his friends, and I love to see the look on the face of his victim when he opens his hand and red sponge balls go rolling and bouncing off in all directions. Squeals of incredulity and delight have filled the house as that trick gets pulled on some unsuspecting uninitiate. So let me keep my watch on and let Skylar keep filling my hand with red sponge balls. If you come over, he'll fill your hand too. He's a tricky kid after all, and I like his style. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. Maybe it brings back memories of magic tricks you learned when you were a kid. I know that me and my pals checked out magic books from the library and learned magic tricks that we would perform in the garage for one another. We'd even perform them for our older siblings and our parents and sometimes other kids in the neighborhood, and we'd charge them all a nickel to come see the magic tricks. We weren't very good, but look at that. The floodgates of memory are already open. Lots coming up. You're going to hear stories from Diane Ferlat, and you'll hear a version of the story of Cinderella called Ashy Pet from Milbury Birch. But first, a conversation with a friend about the storytelling in a video game. <laughs> 
Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, through the telling of tales passed down from teller to listener, sometimes for generations and generations, but also through the books that we choose to read, the films that we choose to watch, many of the conversations that we have together, certainly some of the radio that we listen to, podcasts, and you got to go with us here. You know, I'll tell you, we want to talk today about a kind of thing that is sort of increasingly seeing a lot of attention to story, and that is the world of video games. And I've got Stuart Foster, our audio engineer, here to talk with me about it. He is an avid player of some of those video games, and we want to talk a little bit about stories in video games, and one video game in particular. Yes, Stuart? Yeah. So this game that I've brought today, Sam, is called Wandersong. It's a very, I'll pitch it as a very cute game. Um, <laughs> rather rather cute, but it has a very emotional and heartfelt story attached mm. to it. So here, here's their one-liner about it. It is a musical platforming adventure with an emotional story where you play as none other than a bard. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty it's pretty fun but yeah so you play as a bard and it's really interesting because there is a hero of this story and you are not that hero which is kind of a fun little twist on on the genre of video gaming yeah, yeah. wherein you are usually the person who is you know called to save the world but in this case <laughs> you are simply a bard who is singing about the adventures of the hero but it's a fascinating little tale where it takes you out of that position of kind of power or narrative power and instead puts you in a position of creativity and and poetics which i think yeah. is kind of fun <laughs> <laughs> you know i'll tell you i remember i remember playing some of the first video games that existed you know and i'm talking about way back to the pong days and things like that but certainly mm -hmm. sort of the heyday of when i was a kid and playing video games we were shooting spaceships that's what we were doing you know spaceships we were playing space invaders and sure and, and i think that a lot of people have sort of pigeonholed video games as, you know, this exercise where you shoot stuff or you jump over stuff and, and you fight a big boss at the end and then you get a trophy and you're done, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but video games, like the video game that you're talking about, seem in some cases to be more concerned about immersing you in an environment and letting a story unfold for you. It's not even so much about beating the bad guy at the end as much as it is with engaging with a, a story that you're involved in creating, right? Yeah, it's very true. It's become a really interesting method of storytelling, which yeah. seems very pertinent to us because it's kind of difficult. And you can see it in our storytellers, too, on the show. They come and they really try to get people involved in storytelling, right? They yeah. they call and answer. They talk to the kids and try and get the kids to say things back to them. Right. And video games has this way of naturally allowing you to be a part of the story, which is amazing, really. Mm -hmm. It's quite incredible. In terms of this specific video game, I think it's one of the things that I love about it so much is that its interaction system is everything that you do is in song. So when you, <laughs> whenever you, whenever you answer something, you're singing. Whenever you, you know, try and move around, you're singing. Um, and it seems it just opens all of these doors for the bard to simply sing everything that he does. But like you said, you know, it puts you into this world where creativity, singing, uh, art is kind of like 
the method by which you tell the story. And I love that. I, I think it's really fun that video games can do that. They can take a mechanism, right, and make that the way yeah. that you interact with the world. They can put importance on that thing. And one of the things about this video game is that you are, in essence, playing the role of a storyteller who's telling a story about the exploits of the hero, right? Exactly. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, and it's got that. It's got some some sort of fun meta narrative, you know. In this game, the bard earns no achievements. Only the hero earns achievements, which is very <laughs> funny because you're the bard and you're like, wait a minute, I, I'm doing all this singing, I'm doing all this work, and the hero's getting all of these achievements? What the heck? <laughs> <laughs> is this the sort of game that could be enjoyed by multiple people? One of the things that I, one of the reasons I ask is because I've noticed, it, it seems like one of the complaints about video games when I was a kid is that I would sort Sort of disappear into them, you know, and I was sort of no longer a member of the family, no longer a member of my community, you know, but it sure. seems like now there's a lot more attention to uh, these stories unfolding in some kind of community ways, giving families some things to talk about and stuff like that. How does this game rank on a score like that, on, on a yeah, scale? Yeah, like that's, that? that's a great question. And so I'll, I'll answer it in a couple of ways. The first one is this is a very short experience. This is about a 10 to 12 hour experience. I know a lot of people, when they think about video games, they're like, ah, 40 hour long, you know, right, role playing right. games, right? That <laughs> This is not one of those. The second thing that I'll say is this is a game that caters to probably Probably all ages. It's got some very like in-depth and adult themes. I wouldn't yeah. call them like scary or anything like that. Yeah. But it also has a palette and like a whimsicalness for a kid, you know, who's eight or nine, right? Yeah. And that's what I love about it is it it appeals across that spectrum. You could see probably anybody playing this. And like you said, it would most certainly kind of engender, well, conversations about art, about what it means to be a person who simply, you know, sings, a person who simply (laughs) makes art, and what it means to be the hero, right? And if that is really what that's cracked up to be. Sure. So yeah, I think that you could see a lot of people playing this, and also it's a nice and short experience and worth taking a look at over like a weekend or something. Give us the name of the game again. It is Wandersong. Wander song. It's been fun to talk about sort of the era of video games that we're in. You know, stories come into our lives in all kinds of ways, and this is kind of increasingly becoming one of those ways. Stuart Foster, always a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for being with us. Of course. Thanks for having me. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Always a pleasure to chat with our old friend Stuart Foster, and we'll be sure to have him back. There's a lot more coming up this hour on The Appleseed. Up next, you're going to hear a version of the story of Cinderella, told for you by Milbury Birch, who has collected such versions uh, for years and shares them on recordings and in live performances all over the world. You're going to enjoy Ashy Pet coming up in just a minute. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. 
It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Apple Seed. If you're just joining us, a moment ago we had a conversation with Stuart Foster about the storytelling in the video game Wonder Song. And up next, a story from Milbury Birch, who loves telling stories about diversity and peace and inclusion through the experiences of women. So it seems fitting here that she brings to us just one of hundreds of versions of the story of Cinderella that exist in the world. This is Milbury Birch with... Uh, uh, this version of the Cinderella story called Ashy Pet. Happy to bring it to you here on the Apple Seed. There are so many of these stories. They dot the world wherever one person talks to another. And we are going to jump over time and space for this second one. We only have time for a handful of them today. This tale was collected in the 1940s in Virginia in the mountains of Appalachia. Richard Chase was said to hear this story out of the mouths of the living storytellers there in the mountains. He wrote down a batch of those tales. He published them in one book called Grandfather Tales and another book called The Jack Tales. I hope you will look for both. And if you want to get right to the Cinderella stories available to you, you might want to look online or in a library for a collection called Cinderella by Judy Sierra, because that's where I first saw this story. It's called Ashy Pet, and it's written on the page the way Richard Chase heard it in his ear. So when I read it, I heard it too, in one of the mother tongues which I heard growing up. And I shall tell you it as I heard it. Once there was a hired gal who lived with a woman and her two daughters, and not a one of those three was worth nothing. But as she pet, she was a good hard worker, and that might have made them want to treat her nice, but it didn't. They didn't ever give her no proper food, just scraps from their tables. Didn't give her proper bed, just made her sleep up close to the fire so she'd get up in the morning all ashy. Didn't even give her a proper name, just called her old ashy pet because of the way she looked. Now on a Sunday morning she'd get up real early and go out to tend the animals and then she'd come back inside and cook their breakfast and heat some water and get them ladies all cleaned up so they could go on down to town for Sunday meeting. That morning she was out in the yard when the fire went out in the fireplace. That woman saw the problem. She knew Ashy Pet was busy in the barn, didn't want to walk out and get that gal. So she called one of her daughters and said, look, the fire's gone out, we need some coals. You go cross the holler and get the witchy woman to give you some fire. Well, that gal didn't want to go. She just dragged her feet, came to the door. The witchy woman said, oh, woman, I need some fire. And that old woman called out the door, I need someone to help me comb my hair. I don't want to touch your old cat's comb, said that gal, and she went on home with her hands empty as she'd come. Her mama said, well, you didn't do a thing that I needed you to do. Turned to her sister, said, see if you're better than her. That gal didn't want to go either. Got across the holler, said, oh, woman, give me some fire. And that old woman said, I need someone to help me comb my hair. I don't get to get my fingers in your strings. And off that gal went home with her hands as empty as she'd come. About that time, Ashy Pet come on in the house. That woman saw her daughters had done no good, said, Ashy Pet, get over to Widow Woman's house. 
See if you can get that witch to give you some coals to start our fire. Well, as she pet, she hurried over there and she stopped in the doorway. She said, ma'am, excuse me, ma'am, I wonder if you could give me some coals for fire. And that old woman said, I need someone to help me comb my hair. Ashy Pet went inside and picked up that old woman's comb, and I want to tell you, she combed so tenderly that not a silver strand come out of that woman's head into that comb. When she was done, the old woman said, Take this old dried toadstool like a scoop, and you scoop you up some coals from the fire and take them on home to your house so you can get on down to the Sunday meeting. Oh, no, ma'am, said Ashy Pet. I never have time to go to the Sunday meeting. Well, said the witchy woman, do you want to go? Oh, I love to go. Well, then I'll come along after you get those gals gone and I'll help you out. Well, as she pet, she scooped up some coals, went back over to the house, started up the fire, cooked up a breakfast, heated up some water, got them women scrubbed up clean, sent them out the door on down to the town to go to Sunday meeting. About that time, the old witchy woman come across that gap Knocked at the door, said, you ready to go? Oh, no, ma'am, look. I got all those dishes on the shelf. I got to wash them. The old witchy woman looked at the shelf and said, all you dishes on the shelf, come on down and wash yourself. And they did. They jumped right off the shelf, right into the little wash tub, washed themselves clean, dried themselves off, got up, stacked up nicely on that counter. Oh, they looked like something right out of a department store in town. Are you ready to go now, said that old woman. Oh, no, ma'am, I still got all the pots and pans and kettles and spouts. All you pots, kettles and spouts, go outside and scour out, said the old woman. And do you know they jumped off the table and went down to the stream and scoured themselves out with sand and come on back all clean and shiny like they was right out of a Sears and Roebuck catalog. And as she pet, she watched and just laughed and laughed. You ready to go now, said the witchy woman. Oh, ma'am. It's late now. I'd never even get there before it was all done. I help you, said the witchy woman. Reached into her pocket, took out a little mousy, set that mousy on the ground, took a little slip of leather and a little string through his teeth, and do you know, kapow, there's a fine-looking mare just standing there in the courtyard, snorting and awaiting to take Ashy Pet down on into the town. Go on now, honey. Oh, I can't go. Look at me. I'm just old Ashy Pet. We'll fix that, said the witchy woman. Took another little rag, laid it on the bed, two little bits of leather, said, close your eyes now and you wish. Oh, I wish. I wish. And you know what, Ashy Pet opened her eyes. Kapow! There's the prettiest red dress and red shoes you ever saw in your life. She got all dressed up, got onto that mare and went trotting down into town, tied her horse up right outside, got there for the end of the meeting and be able to stay for the reception. She was a sitting there sipping a cup of punch and not a person knew who she was, looking all pretty and shiny and dressed up like she was. Now do you know that the son of the king of the neighborhood come riding by that day? And he stopped off at that Sunday meeting, went inside, saw that gal, whoo took her a cup of punch, <laughs> stood there and talked to her for a while, and then he said, when you get ready, could I ride you partway home? She said, well, partway. The two of them got on their horses and started up the path, but she didn't want him to come on back, find out she was a hard, ashy pet girl. So she was trying to think how to get rid of him in a nice way. She looked over the side and she kicked off one of her pretty red shoes right down in the brush and she said, oh my goodness, I dropped my shoe down into the brush. Would you be a gentleman and get down and find it for me? 
Well, he got down from that horse and he was digging around in the brush and she whoop, ran on a riding at a gallop, took that horse back to the witchy woman, went on home and tucked away that dress and that shoe, put a little ashes on her face, and there she was a-working by the time that woman and her daughters got home. But you know that prince, that son of the king of the neighborhood, he was in love. And he found that one shoe, and he was determined to find the other and the feet that fit in him. So he started out going from holler to holler and across the gaps, trying at each household to find the gal that had dropped that slipper. Now, the day he was due at their house, that woman got her daughters all dressed up, but she took a good close look at Ashy Pet and saw, even with ashes on her face, she was a good-looking gal. Took her by the hand and led her outside, made her kneel down right outside the house. This is what they did every time they had company. Took the galvanized wash tub, turned it upside down, placed it over her, and when the prince rode up a few minutes later, they invited him to have a seat right down on that wash tub while he tried that slipper on them gals' feet. Well, you know, he handed it to the first girl, and she took it around the back of the house. And she tried it on, but it wouldn't fit, so I'm sorry to say she cut off her big toe. And she put her foot in that shoe and come back like this. I got it on. Oh, it's my shoe. Oh, and I got it on. But the neighbors had a bird that flew down, called from the side of the road, cuts her heels and cuts her toes under the wash tub. That slipper goes. Well, that mama went and chased that bird away. The prince took off that shoe, saw what that gal had done, and said, you done maimed yourself. She did it because she's jealous of me, said her sister, and she took that slipper away, went around behind that house, couldn't get it on. And I'm sorry to say she cut her heel off, put her foot into that shoe and come back saying, ho, ho, I got it on and I am ready for my life of leisure, ho, ho. But that little birdie flew back and said, cuts her heels and cuts her toes under the wash tub, that slipper goes. He took that shoe off that gal and said, you done made yourself lame. And then while he was standing up, he lifted up that wash tub and there was Ashy Pet. He said, what you doing down there? She said, waiting for you to get up. <laughs> well, she stood up and he knew her even with ashes on her face. He said, I brought you back your shoes. She said, thank you kindly. He said, if you want to get the other and any other thing you'd like to take with you, I'd like to carry you down to my daddy's house. And there maybe I could court you and we could see if we couldn't get married and live happy ever after. And she said, don't mind if I do. <laughs> so off they rode together, but that is not the end of the story because, you know, after Ashy Pet and the prince got married, that woman and her daughters was trying to think, whoo, how could they make things turn out different because they sure didn't like the way this story was carrying on. One day they got an idea. They knew the prince was away that day. They took a picnic hamper and they went on down to the castle and they knocked at the door and when Ashy Pet came, they said, Oh, Ashy Pet, <laughs> we're so sorry we was mean to you. We brought you a picnic. We hope you'll come with us to the deep woods. We found this women hole. We'd like you to go with us. Well, Ashy Pet was glad to know their hearts had opened to her. So she said she would. And they went all together into the deep woods. And they had their picnic and after time they took her to the swimming hole they'd promised. Now what they didn't say was that that swimming hole belonged to the hairy man himself. He lived in a cave just the other side of that water. And if you so much as tucked your toes in, he'd come splashing up and carry you away forever. Well, they knew that and they didn't say nothing. They said... Uh, 
Oh, ashy pet, the water's so inviting and all, and since you're a princess and everything, we think you should go in first. So she stepped into that water and ka-splash, there come the hairy man, scooped her up in his arms, hauled her back to his cave, didn't even look out his door again. And that woman and her daughters, they went home satisfied for the first time in their lives. But Ashy Pat wasn't satisfied a bit. She said, I'm not going to stay here. I'm going to leave as soon as I can. He said, well, even if the prince comes, I can send him away without you. She said, well, are you sure there's not some way you could get hurt and get out of the way somehow? He said, no, I can't get hurt. No how, no how, uh, no way except one. Uh, there's this little mole here on my left shoulder, and, and if you shot me with a bullet ball right in that mole, well, it'd knock me out cold, but I'd be up again in a time. Yes, sirree, she said, I'll remember that. Now, meanwhile, the prince had heard his wife had gone and not come home. He took some soldiers and went a-looking for her. And in time, they found the deep woods, and they found that swimming hole. Now, they saw the cave cross the way, and they knew who lived there. The prince, he put his soldiers in a boat and they started to row across. Every time they got to the mouth of that cave, Harry Man would pick up that boat and throw them back where they started from. Ashy Pet was a standing inside just a waiting to be rescued and after a time she got tired of waiting. So she come out to the mouth of the cave. She said, all you got to do is shoot him with a bullet ball right in his mole on his left shoulder. And the Harry Man turned his back to the prince and said, what you telling them that for? I trusted you. And just at that moment, the prince, who was a sharpshooter, took out a pistol and aimed and kaplow. He shot the hairy man. That bullet landed right in that mole on his left shoulder, knocked him out cold. Well, the prince was feeling real motivated, and he jumped in the boat, and he rowed his way to the other side of that water, lifted up Ashy Pet into the boat, and rowed back for the hairy man woke up. Then he carried her home. But when he found out how she happened to wind up in the hairy man's cave, well, he sent his soldiers to the house of that woman and her daughters, rounded all three of them up, carried them off to the deep woods, threw all three of them right into that swimming hole. After that, Ashy Pet and her husband, well, they got down to living happy ever after. And the hairy man, since he ended up with three wives, I believe he lived happy, happy, happy ever after. Ashy Pet, a story told for you by Milbury Birch, a version of the Cinderella story, of which there are hundreds and hundreds of versions from all over the world. We're going to wrap up today with a story called Bone Day. This is an ancient fable, one of Aesop's fables, told for you by Diane Ferlat, accompanied by her frequent musical collaborator, Eric Pearson. You know, these tales have persisted throughout time like they have, partly because they're vessels for teaching life lessons. If you're looking for a story with a moral, well, a fable's a good place to start. Bone Day, again, is the name of this one. Diane Ferlat and Eric Pearson, here on The Appleseed. I'd like to tell you one of my favorite Aesop fables. And you can help me with it, if you like. Your part is easy. All you have to do is sing along with me. And this is what you'll see. Are you ready? Here we go. At least you got a bone. At least you got a bone. At least you got a bu-bu-bu-bu-bu-bu-bone. At least you got a bone. At least you got a bone. 
At least you got a bu-bu-bu-bu-bu-bu-bu. All right, I believe you're ready. Every morning, Frankie's mother would say, Frankie, you better get a move on. You're gonna miss the school bus. You're gonna be late. And the front door would open. Frankie would walk out with his backpack on his back. And he'd run across the yard, open the gate, and hop on the yellow school bus. And off he went to school. Now Butch, Frankie's bulldog, he waited for the day when the door would open and Frankie would come out with no backpack on his back and no yellow school bus would come. And Butch knew, Today was a special day. You guys may call it Saturday, but Butch knew better. Today was Bone Day. Bone Day. Today is the day the butcher throws away a big fat juicy bone. A bone, a bone, I'm gonna get a bone. I'm gonna get a bone today. Oh, leg bone, shoulder bone, I don't mind. Ham bone, steak bone, whatever I find. A bone, a bone, a boo 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 boo. I'm gonna get a bone today. Oh, Butch was so happy. He'd run to a tree and take a little. Cause you see, every Saturday, the butcher in town would throw bones to all the neighborhood dogs who came around. Butch, he ran across the yard, jumped the gate. He knew he had to hurry, because he didn't want to be late. And when Butch got to the back of the butcher shop, oh, 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 he came to a stop. Oh, no. Every dog in town is here. Barney the Beagle, Harry the Hound Dog, even Peppy the Poodle. I'll never get a bone today. When just then, the back of the butcher shop opened, and then one, two, three, four bones went flying in the air. Dogs were leaping and jumping everywhere. And when the dust finally cleared, who had the biggest bone? Peppy the Poodle. When Butch came out of the pile, he had a bone too. But next to Peppy's, it just wouldn't do. Butch looked down at Peppy, who couldn't even pick up his bone. And Butch thought, I want that bone. But Peppy looked over at Butch. And Butch knew he wasn't going to get that bone. Not today. And when Butch looked around, all the other dogs had gone home with their bone. So what else could Butch do? He went home to a bone, a bone, a bu-bu-bu-bone. Yeah, right. A teeny-weeny, stinky-weeny, teeny bone. 
At least you got a bone. At least you got a bone. At least you got a bubba bu bone. At least you got a bone. At least you got a bone. At least you got a bubba bu bone. Well, Butch had to cross a pond on his way home. He had to walk across a log to get to the other side. So off he went. Across the log. At least you got a bone. At least you got a bone. At least you got a bubba bu 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 There was a dog looking up at him from the water. A dog with a big, fat, juicy bone in his mouth. And Butch said, I want that bone. He said, I can eat that bone now and save mine for later. Poor Butch. He didn't know that was his own reflection. And Butch He stared at that dog. The dog stared back. And Butch, his ears went up. The dog's ears went up. Butch showed his teeth. Dog showed his teeth. Then Butch, out, barked. His bone dropped into the water. And then, splash, Butch jumped into to find the other bone. But he found out there was no bone and no dog either. And that's when Butch realized he couldn't swim. He was kicking and splashing, kicking and splashing, kicking and splashing. When finally he made it to the other side. And there he stood, wet as a dog. When Butch got home, he was too tired to jump the gate. He just crawled under it. And there he sat, looking sad, thinking about that bone he once had. <laughs> front gate open. It was Frankie. Here, Butch. Come on, boy. Come on, Butch. Look what I got for you. I got a treat for you from the store. Come on, boy. Look, I got a cookie for you. Hey, Butch, what happened to you? You're all wet. Look what I got for you, boy. A cookie. A cookie bone. Bone? Butch's ears went up. He jumped up, shook himself off, and sat there <laughs> waiting for his cookie. Bone. He thought, well, a cookie bone is better than no bone. At least you got a bone. At least you got a bone. At least you got a bubba bone. 
At least you got a bone. At least you got a bone. At least you got a bubble. Yeah. I shouldn't have been greedy. I shouldn't have been bad. I should have been thankful for what I had. A bone. A bone. A bu-bu-bu-bone. Aesop may have lived thousands of years ago, but today he's alive and well. Diane Ferlat with her frequent musical collaborator, Eric Pearson. Good luck getting that out of your head. Lots of fun from Diane Ferlat telling what is actually an ancient tale, Bone Day, from a collection of stories called Aesop Alive and Well. A pleasure to bring these stories to you this hour. That story from Diane Ferlat, Ashy Pet from Milbury Birch, The Innkeeper's Clever Daughter from Noah Baum, and more here on The Appleseed. Join us, won't you, at byuradio.org slash Appleseed for an archive filled with stories, filled with episodes of the show, which are themselves filled with stories for you and your family. You're sure to enjoy a lot there at byuradio.org slash Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. Our producer is Jeff Simpson, and I can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.